outside. So thank you guys for being here. Thank you for braving the weather and getting yourselves out of bed. Um, my name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. I'm pastor of spiritual formation, so I oversee community and membership um, and now kids as well. And so um, it's great whenever I get to um, step up here and share God's word with you and kind of share what um, God has been teaching me with you all as well. Um, and so welcome. If you're new or visiting us, we hope you feel welcome, regardless of kind of your faith background or where you stand. Our desire is to unite you to life in Christ. So even if you're not there yet, um, but you're just kind of wrestling with that, that's great. We love that you're here. We hope you get your questions answered. Um, but our deepest desire is that you would know Jesus um, and that you would trust him. Um, we are in the middle of First John, of going through the letter to um, a group of churches or maybe one church. Um, and John is writing this letter with one purpose. He wants um, his audience to know that they have eternal life. And he wants them to know specifically that they have eternal life in Christ. And that word know is used throughout the letter, and it's a very experiential knowledge. Um, and so when you hear know, we're going to talk about this later, think experience. Um, and so today is kind of a transition in the book. So the first half of the book, the message was that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The second half of the book, um, John says, the message that we have heard and we now give to you is that God is love and that you should love. And so the rest of the um, letter is really consumed with this concept of love, knowing that God is love, and then how that makes an impact in our lives that we love each other. And so as I was preparing um, and reading this, something hit me about this passage, and it triggered a, um, a thought about the British Baking Show. So you guys read British Baking, or watch British Baking Show? Yes? Okay. So it's this great show. It's British, obviously, um, and it's very aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing. So it's a beautiful show to watch, and it's very happy. So it's a great escape from um, some of the American cultural experience right now, um, and the British cultural experience too. Um, but in this show, they, they do different rounds, and each round is composed of three different bakes. And so it's a group of amateur bakers, and they have to bake three different things. The first round is kind of boring. I don't really know what that's called. The second round is the technical challenge, where they... They give them very... Signature bake, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Second round is very, um, is very technical. It's the technical challenge. And so they give them very specific instructions and want a very kind of um, specific outcome. But the third is my favorite. It's why I watch the show. It's called The Showstopper. And this, they give them freedom to kind of express um, themselves as bakers in the best way that they possibly can. And here's why I love this show. As they're kind of doing their showstopper, all the judges are walking around kind of like asking them about it. And this one judge, Paul, he'll ask them. And he, he kind of looks every now and then. He'll look at them like they're crazy. And he's like, have you tried this before? And they're like, no. And he's like, oh. And he just kind of walks off. And it, it never goes well for that person. It's always a huge failure. And they usually get kicked off the show. Um, but somehow they're happy when they get kicked off. I don't know. Um, but the point of that is, is that the showstopper is something that when it goes well, these, these bakers have practiced, and they've tried it over and over again. They know it inside and out, um, and they know that this is the best that they can do, the best product that they can put out there, and it's beautiful. Um, it's something that is unique and 
wonderful to look at. I love watching the outcome of the showstopper. And what John is telling us today is that the Christian showstopper is love, is how we love each other. So our love for each other should be something that we practice, that we've honed, that we know inside and out, and that ultimately shines out in the world as something unique and beautiful. And so I'm going to go ahead and read the text today, and then we'll dive into um, seeing how our love for each other is actually how we experience our salvation. So this is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, God, I thank you for this letter that um, is sometimes really difficult to understand, and yet it's so simple, and it cuts right through um, all of the confusion that this world and our lives sometimes throw at us. Lord, and we, we get this high calling to love each other. Um, and Lord, it's not a general calling, but it's very specific. You want us to love just as we have been loved by your Son and by you and by the Spirit. And so God, I ask that you would help us do this, that you would help us um, be encouraged that you are at work in us, that you have created a love for each other that um, is beyond trying to explain And that ultimately, Lord, your love is what is working through us, and it's for your glory. And so, Lord, I I just ask that you would help us do this, that you would help us apply this message, and help us trust that um, that it is because we have been loved in Christ that we are free to love others. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is a direct kind of tie-in to last week's message. So if you um, remember here, I'll refresh your memories a little bit. Last week, um, John really set up this kind of like two camps. And the one camp he called the children of God, and the other camp he called children of Satan. And he said, if you do this, you're in that camp, and if you do this, you're in that camp. And so he's kind of creating these these dividing lines. And he's doing this specifically because there's a great division in this church. And so it's really important for his audience to know where people stand, because he doesn't want them to be attacked and led astray and kind of continue to perpetuate the division that's happening. And so it's really important to him that they know where they are, and they also know where the people who are causing the division are and why they're doing this. And so today, he actually starts giving us a little bit of an illustration. What does it look like for someone to live in this one camp, children of God, 
And what does it look like for us, for someone who lives in this other camp, children of Satan? And so this is a very um, brash and, in a lot of ways, offensive message because um, there's no room for gray. He's not letting you entertain the fact that sometimes you can be in one and sometimes you're in the other. It's an either-or statement, not a both-and. And so the illustration that we give comes from Genesis 4, and it's Cain and Abel. And so he is using um, the, the story of Cain and Abel to kind of illustrate his point that you're either in one family or the other. So we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So if you guys don't remember the story of Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel are children of Adam and Eve, so very um, primitive people. Um, it's the first generation after um, creation, and it's the first generation that's existing in a fallen world only. So they didn't know any other world except for the fallen world. And so what happened was Cain and Abel both are, um, they're trying to know God, and they're trying to please God, at least on the surface. And so they both bring sacrifices to God and offerings to God. And so Cain brings um, an offering of, he's a gardener, and so he brings fruits and vegetables and seeds, and he brings them to God. And Abel was a farmer and a rancher, basically. And so he brings the first, um, the first flock that he has and the finest goats that he has to offer. And he slaughters them and offers them to God. And in Genesis 4, something kind of stunning um, happens because God had favor and regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain. And so Cain gets really upset, and he doesn't, um, he doesn't think about why he's upset, but he externalizes the blame for why he's upset and puts it onto Abel, and he ends up murdering him. And so sin has entered the world, and it went from eating a fruit that Adam and Eve shouldn't have eaten because God didn't want to give it to them yet, to murder in one generation. So this is a quick progression. And so something is deeply wrong with the world, and what John's telling us is that Everyone who is not of God is like Cain. Okay? And he's telling Christians, don't be like Cain. So this seems like a fairly low bar for us to meet. Like, hopefully we can all agree, like, it's bad to murder our brother, right? And, like, that's a, that's, that seems like a very attainable standard. It's like, oh, okay, that's great. Yeah, this, this is a great text. I didn't murder my brother today, so I should have an assurance of eternal life. That's great. But he, he throws us a little bit of a curveball later in verse 15. Because he says this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the standard just got a little bit deeper. And John is drawing on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says that whoever is angry at his brother has murdered him in his heart. And so John is saying... He's looking at your heart. He's worried about your heart and how you, um, how you dispositionally feel and think and act towards other people. And it's not, it's not the same exact as murdering, but murder comes from that seed. So when you hate someone, 
that grows and blossoms into murder. And given the right circumstances, the right pressure, the right opportunity, um, hatred becomes murder every time. And so don't think that, oh, because I didn't murder, that makes me a good person. I don't know. I mean, have you guys ever hated somebody? Even for a second? You know, I know I have. So what is this saying? In a way, if you step back, what John is saying is, he's saying, you all belong to Cain. You are all in this family. You all have hate in your hearts. You all belong to Cain. But we know that's not true because he's saying, don't be like Cain. And we'll talk about how that's not true in a bit. But first, let's go back to verse 13. And he's saying, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And he's telling them this because nothing much has changed in the world. So just like the world hated, or Cain hated Abel, because, remember, God had favor for Abel and regard for him, the world also hates Christians for the same reason. The world doesn't hate us because we're good. I think sometimes we think that, um, but that's just, that's a misunderstanding. Like, a lot of times the world will love us because we're good, and that's, that's a good thing. That's wonderful. But something about receiving and belonging to God, it, it incentivizes or it brings out hatred in the world. Because it's, it's a claim, this, this person is loved by God, and I don't have that. And so this is, this is something that has not changed since the beginning of time and will not change. Um, this is just how it is. And so another thing to, to keep in mind um, is that this doesn't mean that the world hates you as much as they possibly could hate you or that they're hating you every second of the day. We also know that's not true, right? I've received love from people who aren't Christians, from people of the world, um, a lot of times. And that's great. That's wonderful. It's common grace. But what this is talking about is it's a dispositional reality that cuts through the externality of behavior and goes to the heart. And it's, it's talking about a deep reality that is rooted in the very essence of what it means to belong to God or not. And so he's saying that these two camps are at war with each other fundamentally. So everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and we see Cain hating his brother being a murderer. So what about Abel? What did Abel do? Well, Abel, he offered a sacrifice that the Lord had regard for, and he got killed for it. And so this is where we kind of segue into um, the, the second half of this and how we are brought from the children of Satan the family of the devil to the family of God. Because Abel should remind us of someone. Abel should remind us of someone else who offered a righteous sacrifice and was murdered. And that's Jesus, right? So Abel is kind of like a prototype um, of what it means to belong to God that Jesus fulfills. Jesus is God, and he belongs to God perfectly, and he offers a perfect sacrifice and is murdered as a result. And so in this, we need to remember a couple things. The first thing that we need to remember is that all of us, every single one of us, naturally, left to our own devices, without God's intervention, 
belong to Cain, and we are of Cain. And so there is no room for arrogance or pride in this message. There's no room for um, thinking that you've done something to make you a child of God, um, because remember, we all belong to Cain. We all have that natural hatred that exists in our hearts. But it also tells us something else. It tells us that we have been moved from death, and we've passed through, passed out of death and into life. So we have passed out of death, the family of Satan, belonging to Cain, and we've moved into life, the family of Jesus, and it's eternal life. And we know this, remember, no experience. We know this, we experience this when we love each other. And so there's this great invitation to experience our salvation, experience passing through death and into life by loving each other. And that's how we experience that. That's how we gain a deep experiential knowledge that produces the assurance that John wants us to have. So it's through our love, through our active love, that we do this. And he doesn't, he doesn't, again, he gets right back into it. He does not allow us to think that we can entertain both of these things. He's saying, whoever, everyone who, whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so he's essentially saying these are oil and water. You can't be in one camp, in one family, and existing with hatred while claiming to be in the family of love. And this is, this is really challenging for us because we Christians continue to struggle with hating each other. If you don't believe me, um, read a little bit of church history. Like, there's so much division. There's so much tearing down um, that occurs. And it's a great, great travesty um, that this happens because it should really threaten our understanding that we actually know God and that we actually know Christ and that we have a relationship with us because that's what his word says we won't do is hate each other. And so this is really challenging. Um, how can we love when we still exist with some desire or elements or temptation to hate? And so in verse 16, John gets explicit and he transitions from um, the example of Cain to the example of Christ. And so the only way we can know love, like this letter wants us to know love, is by knowing Christ. And this is because um, Christian love is perfectly holistic. So the love of Christ is love of mind, body, and soul. And this is a kind of love that is only possible in Christ. Um, Now listen, there's other types of love. And so... Again, you don't have to be a Christian to express love or to show love in one sense. But in another sense, you absolutely do. Because you can't give away, you can't be loving in this way without first receiving love in this way. So you can't give away the love of Christ if you haven't first received the love of Christ. So it's a prerequisite. You can't, um, you can't love in order to get the love of Christ. You only love when you have accepted first Christ's love for you. Um, 
If you reject God's love for you in Christ, you can't be a child of God. And remember, every single person who has ever been a child of God except for Jesus was first a child of Cain. And so there's no one who is beyond the hope of becoming a child of God. And he offers it to everyone. And so what you have to reckon with if you're in that place today you have to reckon with the fact that God is offering his love to you and you're rejecting it. And so I, that's the call that we receive constantly as Christians and to the whole world is to soften, is to soften to that and to receive the love of Christ on your behalf. This is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So, Let's talk about that for a minute, because if that's our example of love, we have to understand it. Because in one way, if you understand it, this love as an example for what you should do, and only an example, it's crazy, and it makes no sense. So if Jesus' love and his laying down of his life is only an example, it's essentially like someone who is running down the street saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then runs into traffic and says, I'm dying for you. And you're like sitting on the, on, in like Northside Social drinking your coffee and like, uh, why did you do that? Right? Like there was, I was not in danger. That bus that you got hit by wasn't about to hit me. Like that's not actually loving. It's just crazy. And so if you think that the, the death of Jesus was essentially like that, where he's saying, see what kind of great love I have for the world? I'm going to die. And it didn't actually do anything? Then that's not love. That's foolishness. But if Jesus' love and his death actually did something, if it wasn't an example first, but if his death was a substitute first, then it makes all the difference in the world, and it is love, and it's the highest form of love. Because what that claim means is that this death is what you deserve, and I am standing in your place. And when I die, it means that you do not. And that's the very essence of Christian love is understanding that Jesus was first our substitute. And he did that before we understood that. He did that before we could believe that. He did that before um, we even were aware of it. He did that while we were still children with Cain. And so he died for the most wicked person, the most hopeless person. Um, And he did it freely. And he offers it to us. So, Jesus' crucifixion, if he is a substitute and then an example, it attaches us to an inexhaustible source of sacrificial love. And this is how we are able to, that was the question we were trying to answer, right? How can we do this if this is such a high standard? And we can do this because we're attached to this source. So, in verse 17 and 18, um, 
John gets into it, and he said, he gives a very practical example. And these are great because, again, this, this is where we should find great encouragement. It says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The flip side of that is if you see your brother in need and open your heart to him and all of your goods are his as much as they're yours— then God's love clearly abides in you. And so I want us as a church to be very encouraged because when I think about this church, and I've been in this church for about five years now, um, I have experienced so much love and so much of this sacrificial service that only could come from Jesus. And I've experienced very little to no hate. I'm just going to say that. Um, And I think anybody who's been here for a very long time will see that and will experience that, that we have a very loving body, um, that we look for opportunities to serve and to sacrifice for each other. And this is evidence of God's love in us. And so we need to be encouraged by this, that we are children of God, that we are not children of Satan. And that's such an important encouragement to accept and to listen to and to hear because it will continue to change your life. But there's another aspect of this that is an invitation. And John is kind of teasing us, and he wants us to follow this example so that we can experience this, our salvation, more and more. And it's basically a good like analogy might be to think of being in a pool and learning to swim. And so I don't know if you guys have memories of learning to swim. I do. Um, you start in the shallow end and you love it, and you just, like, splash around, and it's great. But what happens after, you're in the pool, but what happens after a while is if that's where you stay, it gets really boring. Like, you just get sick of being in the shallow end of the pool, and you're like, oh, I've done everything that I can do. So one of two things will happen. You'll get out of the pool and be like, yeah, swimming's kind of lame. I don't want to be in the pool anymore. Or you'll go into the deep end of the pool, and you'll start having fun again. And so think of this, that John here is inviting us into the deeper end of the pool, even as he's encouraging us that we are already in the pool. He's saying, you guys are children of God, you love, and continue to love more and more like Christ in order to experience the fullness of your salvation. And so it's a great invitation um, that he gives to us. And so a couple of things I want to point out to you about this text that you might have like overlooked. I did the first couple times I was reading this, um, but that is really important for us to hear. Um, is in verse 17, John says, "But if anyone has the world's goods, so a that's us guys. Like we're, we're we are wealthy as a church, and specifically um, as a people in this area in the United States in Arlington, we are very wealthy. We have the world's goods. So listen up." This is you. Anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. So in this context, um, you know, first century Jerusalem, this would have been like common sense. You always see each other. Like to be isolated and separated from the greater community was something that was only reserved for the very wealthiest of people. In our culture, in our modern context, we live lives of isolation. We live very detached from each other. And so it's hard to see. 
it's hard to see each other. We don't see each other during the week. We see our phones, we see our computers, we see our TVs. We don't see each other. And so there's going to be things that we um, have to be aware of and are willing to die to in order to experience more and more of this invitation to love. We are hurt and harmed by distance, so just being physically separated from each other. Also, most of our needs are met, and so we can fall into the trap of believing that others people, other people's needs are met too. And so we just assume everybody's okay, they're doing good. And then we're also so busy that we very seldom do we stop to actually look and see. And this isn't, um, this isn't like a spiritual see. This is very practical. So when you stop and you look at someone and you just look at them, usually you can see if they're in need. You can see pain in their face. You can see bags under their eyes. You can see that maybe their clothes are worn. You can see the changes that they might be going through that show that something's wrong. And so we have to slow down and see and look at each other. So to help us do this, um, something that as I was thinking about myself and then for us too, I want to give us four ways where we can imitate Christ by dying to ourselves. So four ways we need to die and then two ways that we need to live in order to fully love like Christ wants us to love. So here it is, guys. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Um, (laughs) It's painful. Dying is hard. So here it goes. The first way that I think we as a church need to practice dying to ourselves is in our vacations. Here's why I say that. Not because vacations are bad or we shouldn't ever take them, but think about the cost of taking vacations regularly as a rhythm of life. When you take a vacation, you're absent, and you can't see people. And it creates, it, da- it creates distance, but it also damages any kind of faithful presence that you have in other people's lives. So much so that one, when someone is in a time of need, they might not even think to call you because they're like, "Eh, they're probably out of town. Or they just don't even know that you care because you haven't been there consistently. We have a lot of expendable income, and this world is a fun place to see and to visit, and there's a place for vacations. But when you're taking a vacation every month, or even every other month, and you're leaving your community and the people that depend on you to love them, It's really harming your ability to experience your salvation. The second way is busy schedules. So we often take vacations because we're so busy. And we cram our days from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. full of things that we must do. And it might be driven towards the end of um, having a great career It might be driven to the end of having a really awesome family and making sure that your kids are doing every single thing that they ever wanted to do. 
Um, it might be driven to the end of doing church things, where you fill up your schedule so much with being involved in church things that you don't actually have any time to organically and um, authentically love someone outside of that. So this creates kind of like a busy disposition that other people can smell on you. And this happens to me all the time, so I'm preaching to myself because people say, I know you're busy, but, or something like that. Like that's a good indication that they see it in your eye. They see the crazy look and the franticness. And so I know you're really busy, but can you please help me? Um, and so I just, like, that's an area we need to die to. It's, I don't know if it's pride or um, it might be well-intended, but we're just so busy that we really struggle to stop and allow space to love people. Another one, and this is in the text, um, it's love of money. So if we become so attached to our material goods that we don't want to share with somebody who's in need, it's telling us that we're loving that money more than we're loving that person. And so this, to be honest, I don't see this a ton in our church. I see our church is very generous, but I know what money does, and money is very sneaky. And so I want to constantly guard us against this, because the more money you have, the more you're going to be tempted to love it. Um, but sacrificial love, it always carries a financial cost. Have you guys experienced this? So somebody who's in deep need of love, there's a price tag that also comes with that. So whether it's for counseling or whether it's for um, just medical needs that they have, someone who's in deep need usually needs financial help. And so in this example, it's very practical. Um, this person is in need. This brother is in need. And someone sees him that he's in need and has the goods to give him and he closes his heart off. And it's not because he think, he doesn't think, I, oh, I hate him, so I'm not going to give it. It's because he loves what he has more than his brother. And so that can't be true for us. We have to guard ourselves against that. And so here's a practical way to do that. Practice giving away your stuff. Practice generosity. Think of it that way. When you're giving something, don't think of it as something you have to do, but think of it as sharing with someone in need meeting a real need that somebody has. It's an act of love. And here's the last one, fear of man. So again, we have to die to fear of man. A lot of times we don't say what we need to say. We don't do what we need to do because we're worried about how we're going to be perceived. So this might be especially true in the workplace or with around friends who aren't Christians. Um, you see an opportunity to step in and love someone and yet you're like, oh, I don't want them to think of me as like that kind of Christian or like someone who's a little bit weird. Like it might be a social faux pas to step in and love someone in that situation. And we're afraid of that. We're terrified of what, um, of what people might think of us because sometimes loving people is weird, especially when you're loving someone who's wicked. That's weird, and the world doesn't like that. Um, and so we need to die to what... We want other people to think about us in order to do this. And then here's two ways to live. Okay, so take a breath. We're done dying. <laughs> and so now we get to live. So here's things that you can do. And these are really more principles um, to live by as Christians. And we're free to do this. 
So we are free to do all of this because we've received it in Christ. And so I want to show you that. The first way is to make and keep promises. So God made a promise to his people that he would not leave them or forsake them, that he would dwell with them. He made that promise from the beginning of time. So he committed himself, regardless of what happened, to that people and to doing that. And then he kept his promise, and he kept it in Jesus Christ, who creates the ability for God to dwell with us without destroying us. So this is something that we need to get better at together as a church, is that, A, we need to make real commitments to each other. And so this can look a a lot of different ways. I won't go into all of them, but one of them is by joining a community group. And when you join a community group, you are making a commitment to that group, at the very least, to show up. And so if you are in a community group, consider that, that you have made a commitment to those people that you will be there every week or every other week. So don't allow work, recreation, convenience, or preference to stand in the way of you fulfilling that commitment. It's really important. Again, if you make a commitment and then it's kind of like 50-50, whether you come through with that commitment, it really starts to harm your ability to love in the way that we're called to love. So make and keep promises. The second is to give and receive truth. Um, So... When you are in deep, committed relationships with each other, you're going to experience friction. And that friction is usually the result of um, somebody either offending you or doing something they shouldn't have or you doing something you shouldn't have. And so we need to learn to give and receive truth better. And so what I mean by this is that when you see someone um, who is doing something or saying something that they probably shouldn't, We need to be willing to step into that and tell them lovingly, but truthfully. And so I think we are learning how to do this better, but I think we have a lot of room to grow. And then the other way um, that we need to do this is we need to receive it when it's presented to us. And this I know we need to grow in um, because a lot of times we get very defensive when we're confronted. And so I don't know what that's about. I know for me, it's usually because I like to think that I am my own savior and that I don't need Um, someone to tell me where I'm falling short. But we need to receive that because it comes from love. It comes from a place of love from our brothers and sisters who love us. And so um, I think when we think of stepping into these places and these opportunities to love each other and to love people who are in deep need of love, Something happens, and I've experienced this myself just in the last couple months um, with people who are in a great deal of need and can't really bring anything um, or do anything. And it's, it's a deep, deep need. And so it's really, it's really hard to believe that I can do anything, to be honest with you. It feels futile. I defeat myself before I even enter into it. And I think we have a fear when we're faced with these situations, um, of realizing how little we have to offer. We're afraid that we don't have enough. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We don't, know how, we don't have enough skill. And so what we do is we just kind of like step back and wait for somebody else to step in. Or we like 
try and get a professional to help. Um, and this is not new. So I want you guys to consider this. Um, and this is, this is where we're going to close. But the disciples had the same problem. Because as Jesus was teaching, a great crowd was following him. And he saw the crowd. And he had compassion on the crowd. And he told his disciples, go and feed the crowd. 5,000 people. And they're like, so should we go in to the town and buy all this food? And he's like, no, what do you have? And they said, oh, we have five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus said, yeah, go and feed them. They didn't have enough. They knew they didn't have enough. And yet their faithfulness to Jesus's command to go and bring what you have, have compassion on them. Jesus stepped in and filled that gap from what they didn't have. And so I just want to encourage you all that you may, you honestly may not have very much. You may not have very much time because of your season of life. You may not have very much skill in talking to somebody who is in deep pain. That's not an excuse to withdraw. Jesus wants you to bring your five loaves and your two fish, knowing that it's not you. It's not about you. The math doesn't need to add up. It never will add up for you being able to love somebody as they need to be loved, but that he's going to do it. And he's going to work through you to do that. And that's how we experience our salvation. Please pray with me. God, we thank you so much um, for this word. (laughs) We thank you for reminding us of how you have loved us. We thank you that, um, that none of us, and there's no one who's beyond your ability to love and to bring into your family. And God, I just pray that that would happen. Um, I pray that, um, that people would realize, who've never realized it before, that you died for them. God, and that they would live in that. And that, that they would, in that, pass through death and into life. And God, I pray for all of us who believe that, um, that we would not be afraid, um, that we would not shut off our hearts to each other, that we would not um, allow the cares of this world and our love for this world to drown out what we have been made to do and saved to do, which is to love each other. And so, Lord, I ask for your power and your spirit to help us do that, to help me do this. Um, God, and that we would find great joy in our salvation as we experience it through our love for each other. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
in passing 